Welcome to the weekly podcast of Upper Room Christian Fellowship in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thank you for listening. We are going to talk about the wrath of God this morning. So hold on to your chairs. Hold on to the person next to you. But before that, if you would, stand up for the reading of the Word of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We shall start. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify God and glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Let's pray. Father, our desire this morning is to glorify You as God. Help us to understand clearer Your wrath, and the truth and love that goes with it. Lord, we thank You that You have taken for us Your wrath away. And we all owe it to Jesus Christ. We pray that You would bless our ears, help us to understand, help us to grow, and help us once again to fall down and just worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The wrath of God. The word wrath is orge. It means anger, indignation, hatred. But see, with God, it would mean a perfect anger, a perfect indignation, and a perfect hatred. The result is a perfect judgment. Now understand something. Paul is writing to the Romans, church in Rome. And it's a Gentile world. And many people will argue the fact of what happens to the person that has never heard of Christ. What about the person they used to say used to be back when I was a kid, the pygmy in Africa, that has never heard? Well, Paul is going to explain that nobody has any excuse. Why? Because, well, we'll find out. So the wrath, again, is the perfect judgment against evil that God has. It's been revealed to make known, to uncover. Now, to understand this a little better, um, Nelson's Illustrated Dictionary puts it this way. I can grab it really quick. So one of those times that, again, my lack of technology catches up with me because I have all these papers, and so I have to be very careful that I probably didn't even bring it. Okay, well, we're going to have to skip that one. 
It was a great point, too. You would have loved it. You would have said, wow, where did you get that from? Can I have a copy of that one? But, again, it's to explain, again, the wrath of God and his perfect judgment. Is that, again, God looks at everything that we're going to go over, the evidence that has been given, and he has the right to judge. He's revealed it to man in creation. Now, how is that revealed in creation, his judgment? We'll talk a little bit about that. But it's revealed against all ungodliness. Ungodliness is the absence of God in mind and act to conduct oneself towards evil. It's not mindful of God at all. Of this one I do know I have. Excuse me for a second. This is Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, Proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Godliness is again the world acting without a God. There's only one true living God. And it's living your life as if he doesn't exist. And that's what the world's trying to do at this point. To live in really the truth that you consider to be true. It's subjective. My truth. But God has declared it's ungodliness that you're taking me out of the equation. But it's not just ungodliness. It's against all unrighteousness. It's to act with deliberate intent to do injustice, doing wrong to doing iniquities, to seek out wickedness. Or to put it plainly, it's man against man. Man sinning against man. And if you will, it's the second part of the Ten Commandments. Not honoring your father, your mother, killing, murdering, stealing, committing adultery, sexual acts, bearing false witness, coveting other things. It's the unrighteousness of man. And as again we see throughout history of mankind, that's usually the case. Man against man. Why? Because there is no God in their thoughts. And God is declaring again the evidence against them because they suppress the truth. It means to hold back or hold down truth. It means to bound or restrain it. Hold captivity. It's to sit on a lid. All these things. Or as one person said, it's like taking a, a beach ball and taking it to water, and trying to keep it down. Pops up. And see, this is what God's declaring. You're all guilty. You suppress what you already know to be true. He goes on. Because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. How? And Romans helps us out, chapter 2. Listen, Paul will go on to say, Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts, accusing of else, excusing them. 
See, God has given us a conscience. And why that is so powerful is think with me. The old adage, the old question, the old proverb of who am I, what am I? I breathe, therefore I exist. I think, therefore I know that I am alive. And now even that's in question. <laughs> There's actually people who think, oh, is this really real? Is this just a dream? Is this a matrix? No, this is real. But again, see, that's the thing that, again, is the evidence against us is that we think. You never see a bunch of dogs sitting there and going, hmm, why are we here, guys? I mean, really, we, we go about this every day. We look for food. We scrounge for it. But what's the purpose? I mean, why do it? Besides, Jerome over there always gets the most. Just because he's the biggest dog, he gets all of it. So why is that? Why can't we get a collection of dogs together and say, hey, this is not fair, Jerome. You shouldn't always get first pick just because you got the biggest mouth. Dogs don't do that. They can't reason. They can't think. And God is saying, your own conscience is a witness against you. That everybody knows right from wrong. Throughout all tribals, throughout all mankind, there are certain laws that was written in their hearts that they knew. You don't kill someone. You don't murder. You don't steal. But something else, too. Uh, Solomon will tell us in Ecclesiastes. He says, God has made everything beautiful in His time, but also He has put eternity in our hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. See, it's not just the fact that we wonder what we're here for, but we also understand there's something more to life. That when we die, something else happens. God's been planted into us. A homing device, that there's something more. That there's something wonderful out there. There's something beautiful. There's something we can hang on to. Most of mankind says, I can't reach it. I can't touch it. And right now, it's interesting because uh, in our day and age, which is very fascinating, is the belief that once you die, you are nothing, it still is there. But in their mindset, they really do believe that somehow through science, they will achieve eternal life. Why? Because again, the ground waits for us all. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. We feel guilt. We feel shame of our lives. What we've done, missed opportunities, or even the old, again, saying that they died too soon. They had so much more to give. They had so much more to offer. They so much more wanted they to achieve, but time ran out. Time runs out on all of us. It's ticking. It's the eternity in our hearts saying, but wait a minute, there's something in me that says, I live forever, but the reality of the physical life is, no, we don't. Dogs don't sit there and go, hey, Al, what do you think what happens when we die? Cats might, because those guys are weird. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't think anybody does. Now we know why we look at cats and go, they're a lot like women, aren't they? Mysterious. What are they thinking? We had a cat, it would stare at you. It'd be hiding up in the rafters, staring down at you. And you look at it and you're thinking, you know, if you were a lion, you'd right now pounce on me and eat me because you have that look in your eyes that you'd love to just kill me. 
But you don't know what a cat is thinking. But reality is, it's not thinking of eternity. It's not thinking of what happens when it dies. It just dies. God has put this into the hearts of men. Our conscience and also the spirit, the truth that we do live forever, eternity. But let's go on. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, God has revealed himself in his eternal power. His Godhead is his divine nature, his creativity, his genius, his beauty, his humor, his love revealed in his creation. God has his signature on everything he's created. See, it's the other part of us that when we see something that's beautiful like a sunset, there's something that's longing in us. There's something that looks at it and says, wonderful. It's beautiful. It's the creativity of God. A. Wildersmith, days past, said, God, having left to us a witness, has given to us two Bibles. One we see in the Word of God in print before us on paper. Black and white. The second is the physical creation of God's witness that is revealed in the physical universe that is before us. The painting, the picture, the art. Now, my friend Kevin over there, which I'll pick on him because I love to pick on Kevin. Kevin has always had an eye for this. Sometimes to his fault. Would be working and he'd be gazing at something and instead of working, I'd be going, Kevin, what are you doing? He goes, look at that. That's, and he'd tell me what it was, a bird or whatever. I go, yeah, that's a bird. And that's a window. We don't go home until we put the bird, a window into the house and the bird doesn't go flying into the house. The reason I pick on him because he does have an eye for looking at beauty. What he likes to do is go travel and go look at nature. You do too, probably. To see the handiwork and the beauty of God makes you wonder. If you've never looked at the ocean, then you've missed out because you see the vastness of something that is just amazing. But you have something here that we do that is amazing too. Just drive out of Lincoln, get away from the lights and stare up at the heavens. The beauty of it. Because see, the heavens, the Bible says, declare the glory of God. The ferment shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals language. The beauty of the stars and the, and the amazing thing is, again, shows the creative genius of God, but also His meticulous handiwork. Because see, by the stars, because they're so consistent, you can navigate around this globe. You could be in the middle of the ocean and understand where you are. Just because, again, like clockwork, the stars and the different seasons are always in the same place. God did that. There's a there's a bird and it's called a, the golden plover. It lives in Alaska and it's an amazing thing. What's so amazing about this bird is that it migrates to Hawaii. Smart bird. When it starts getting cold in Alaska, it goes, let's go to Hawaii, guys. Now, that's pretty amazing in itself. I get it. 
But what's truly amazing is when it goes back to Alaska in the springtime and does what birds do. You know those little swallows, how they always seem to get in the places you don't want them to? Thankfully, we haven't had that for a while. But our other house, always, constantly, we had these swallows. They make nests to lay eggs, to have babies, and that's what the golden clever does. But here's the amazing thing, is that when the young birds get old enough, in fact, a lot of people joke about when they get the teenage years and they know it all, mom and dad says, see ya, and they fly back to Hawaii without them. Now, that's amazing itself because I was showing this to the kids on Thursday, is that you look at Alaska, it's right here, and then you look at the Pacific Ocean, it's humongous, but there's a little couple spots, seven of them, little tiny spots in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Those are the Hawaiian Islands. How in God's green earth, oh wait, God, those little birds fly to this little tiny dot. And if that was not amazing enough, here's the other part of it. Those teenagers, they finally get tired of playing the video games downstairs and realize there's no food to eat and it's getting cold. They realize, you know, it's not so bad to be with mom and dad. So without anybody to show them the way, they make the same journey before winter. Little things like this God has put into place for us to go, okay, wait a minute. There's more to this than I understood. Let me give you a few other things. I'm sure you've looked at these things, but I like to look at them because I find them very fascinating. For us to exist on this earth, there are certain things that have to take place. One, if you believe it or not, is the right solar system. Reading from a book of 20 compelling evidence that God exists. First of all, not only are old galaxy, any old galaxy will do, but some galaxies are too close to one another, too close to another large galaxy, so that the galaxies actually interfere gravitationally with each other. Some galaxies are too large them too hot, making them stable star systems virtually impossible. Galaxies <clears throat> excuse me, are too elliptical or too irregular, also would have a difficult time sustaining a stable star system. Our galaxy is nicely organized spiral. How many galaxies might be the right size and shape and the right kind of location? No one's sure, but the estimate is one in every thousand is just reasonable. That's just the galaxy. The right galaxy, of course, a billion stars, however. Most of these stars are not sustainable candidates for stable solar systems. The star must be in the right place and be at the right kind of star. Take our Milky Way galaxy, for example. Stars in the central mass of stars or deep within the spiral arms of the galaxy will generally be too close together. Stars far from the spiral arms won't be likely do well either because such stars probably won't be able to produce enough heavy elements to make the planets. Our star is on the fringe of a spiral arm, not too close, not too far. Most of the stars in the right parts of the galaxy, though, will not be the kind of star we have. Most will be too big and thus too hot, unstable, or too small. Moreover, binary star systems in which two stars are located or to orbit around each other are very, very unlikely. So 
you fans of Star Trek and Star Wars that show the two suns and the planet, it's saying it's impossible. The gravitational pull, they just pull everything apart. But it's kind of nice for science fiction. Well, look, it's got two suns. Well, how cool would that be? But he goes on, too. Many factors, location, location of the planet, too, is important. The most basic requirement for a decent planet to support life is its location. Presumably, as one or more planets formed around a star, such planets could form a virtually any distance from the star. Between the extremes of too close and is pulled into the star, too far escapes from the star's gravity. Yet the region around the star within which planet must consistently orbit in order to sustain life, at least above the level of microbe, is a very narrow band. For example, our sun band is a region of 90 to 100 million. Ours is 93 million, right in that sweet spot. Now remember something. This is not taking the factor of the sun itself. Well, it is actually. But it's talking about the sun has to be in right relation to the earth and the right distance. If the sun's too big, it's too hot, it's got to be further away. If the star is too small, it's got to be closer. But still, it still wouldn't sustain life as we know it. It has to be, the sun has to be perfect too. See where this gets all complicated? Do you see where God made it this way so many people would understand that there had to be a creator? Many other such factors, they go on to say, have been discovered. The size and surface gravity of the planet, which of course are interrelated, must be just right. Too big and heavy of a planet, the atmosphere will be rich with noxious elements like ammonia and methane. methane. Too small and light, and the atmosphere won't retain water. The planet must turn on its axis and be tilted just enough to prevent extremes of temperatures and weather. The planet must be composed of various heavy elements to make complex molecules and compounds such as water possible. It must have a crust that's thick enough to keep volcanoes from dominating the surface and thin enough to allow the atmosphere to retain oxygen. You know, it's one of those things that you you ever watch those movies, I, I do, uh, the guy is stuck in the middle of the ocean with a gal. And just how daunting that would be, just with storms and everything else coming at you, regardless of, you know, what's underneath them. But just being out there and being able to actually move in the right direction. To find yourself home, land. Now just again, picture yourself on this earth, which is, you know, to us is big, but when you start getting away from the earth, you realize how small this little planet is. The further away you get, is like, it's like a marble. And then the further away you get, it's like a grain of sand. In fact, they've likened it to like a ping pong ball, if you will. This would be the sun. And then a grain of sand would be the earth. And it would have to be like mm, about 10 yards away. And that would be the kind of the orbit that it would go around, right? But the thing is, is then if you take the nearest star from our planet and solar system, you're looking at like millions of miles away. Now just picture yourself in that star system and you're staring at the earth because you're not going to find it. How small are you? But wait a minute, that's not the end of it. Do you know what scientists are saying? And they have to confirm it. 
that everything's still expanding, everything's still moving. And this is kind of like, hmm, this is interesting because it's still moving, expanding. But here's the problem. It's not eternal. There's no way it could be eternal. So to them, okay, it's expanding, so what's going to happen? Well, they say in time, you know, they always put time on things. Well, billions and billions of years or whenever, it's, it's probably going to reach its, 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 its furthest extent. Like a bungee cord, it's going to come to the furthest that it can, and then it's going to start collapsing on us. But see, then they have another problem. And the problem just is itself is creation. Why? Because creation has to have a beginning now. They understand that, the, and that was one of the theories that they had, like Carl Sagan, that it's eternal, the cosmos are eternal. No, they're not. Everything's dying. And everything points now that science has figured out that there was a beginning. They call it the Big Bang Theory. I know you've heard of that, right? But there was a beginning. But see, here's the thing, and I just, I listened to something on Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins was talking. This was a recent one. And actually, he was kind of talking about, well, yeah, we don't get that. We don't go there. And that's it. Who started it? How did it all began then? It couldn't have just, you know, who touched the button? Who, who, who pushed the first domino? Who did that? And of course, the person that was interviewing him was Catholic, so he was trying to get him to say, couldn't it be God? And Richard Dawkins says, we don't go there. In science, that's the easy out. Easy out? See, the thing is, is remember, God has given us something. What is it? Our conscience. But with that is the mind to think. And I've been in construction all my life, and I have to tell you, as much as I wanted to sit in that truck and just wait for time to make those windows to go into those holes so I wouldn't have to get out in the cold, it never happened. I would have loved that to happen. But the truth of the matter is, is when there is something created, there is a creator. God has put that into our hearts too. That we create. Somebody figured out, you know what? Mm, Charlie, I'm tired of sitting on the floor, aren't you? Yeah. Let's build something we could sit on. Because the rock is hard. And plus, there's no back. I mean, you know, my back right here in the lower back is starting to hurt me all the time. Let's create something we can sit on. I got it. It'll be a flat surface. And they sit on it. It's great, but I don't have anything, again, for my back. So then they figure to put a back on it. It's called a chair, and you're sitting on it. Somebody created that in the beginning. Somebody figured it out. Don't worry. It didn't evolve. They didn't just put a piece of wood there and say, okay, hopefully, eventually, it'll turn into a chair. No, because, again, God has put common sense into us. There has to be a creator. Now, what about the complexity of your own body? Let's just go there. Let's talk about your DNA. The most important evidence suggests the involvement of intelligent designer is the presence of DNA, the guiding role that DNA plays in the formation of biological systems. Science has demonstrated that DNA is actually a digital code. A code. Excuse me. DNA is specified information. DNA exhibits characteristics 
that when examined through Dimskis, excuse me, that's a scientist I cannot pronounce, it's Dimskis, Dimskis, explanatory filter are best explained by the creative activity of an intelligent designer. As Stephen C. Meyer argues in his book Signature in, in the Cell, intelligence is the only known cause of complex functionality, integrated information processing systems. In other words, in the history of scientific and intelligence research, we can find no example in which information came from anything other than an intelligent source. What does it mean? It means this. You have, if you will, in our little vernacular, you have like a chip that has all your information. It's called DNA. In fact, this is what scientists are trying to do now. They're trying to take some of your DNA and they're trying to clone. They're able to do certain things right now. Clone animals. They're trying to clone man. Again, think of their thought process. If I could take my DNA when I'm... 80 years old, say, okay, I'm done with this body, or 70, 20, whatever, and then again clone myself and somehow be able to put my soul into that being, then, hey, I can keep living. Why? Because everything about you is in that DNA, and they want to start altering it so that, you know, certain things that you can change. Like, I'm six foot six right now, and I'm playing for the Chicago Bulls. Or I'm a lot smarter than I am now. I'm a lot handsomer. I'm a lot prettier. I have blonde hair. I have blue eyes. All because of that that little part of you that God has put in there to design. But you know what it is? It's His signature. Says God. The chair you're sitting on is still a miracle. You know why? They call it cosmic glue. Something's holding those molecules together, those atoms that's keeping that chair together. Do you know you're sitting on more air than you are, really solid form? So it's been shown that way an atom is made, that there's space between. It's like something, again, revolving around, if you will, the center. So really, every solid piece has more air than it does solid. How does that work? You see God up going, let's wait till let's see how they figure this one out. That's the miracle, amazing thing God has done. That nobody has excuse. That even a person in the farthest tribe, they can look up and they say, God, somebody created that. That they understand that this whole world and the system of it, somebody's behind it. Nobody has excuse. And that's what Paul's declaring here. Nobody has excuse. Everybody has to recognize that there is a God. Verse 21. Notice too, excuse me, finish 20. They are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It started at the Tower of Babel. Notice the digression. They knew God. Number one, they did not glorify God. They didn't honor Him, praise Him, hold Him in honor, to think of Him, 
have a high opinion of him. Two, they weren't thankful for God, acknowledge his goodness. Three, they became futile, vain, empty, devoid of truth in their thoughts. Four, they became foolish in their hearts, darkened and void of light. See, what happened was, again, instead of honoring God, they began to honor themselves. History is now proving, and again, this is such, such an outward find that you're not going to hear much about it, but all religions started with monophysically, and they've always said, no, it's been not monophysically, which means only one God. And they're discovering, hmm, these really ancient tribes have started thinking only one God. See, it evolved into many gods, because what they started to do, as if you will, look at 22, Professing to be wise, they became fools. Changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and the birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So professing to be wise, they affirm oneself to one another is basically what it means. They change, they exchange one thing for another to transform from the incorruptible God, the image made like corruptible Man, they made their God in their image. And when they took away the fact that they were made in God's image, they made it so that they were made in their own image. And because of this, now the digression happens. Then they created things like objects and idols of birds, four-footed animals, and finally, creeping things. And that word typically means snakes. Sound familiar? See, Satan to this day still wants to be worshipped as God. Any way he can. Even if he can get them foolishly thinking about themselves first. See, void without God. If you have, if you have ungodliness, then there's that void, and that void is going to be filled. Why? Because remember, we said eternity in the hearts. You were made, and I was made to worship God. Did you know that? You take that away, then you're still going to worship. And the sad thing is, is we put ourselves in place. I'm going to start worshiping me, man. But see, man will look up the sky and see the birds flying and say, I think God would fly. God must be an eagle. And then man would look at an animal and see like a lion or something and said, hmm, but yeah, king of beasts, that sounds good. God must be like the king of beasts. But then it digresses even further and further. No, God must be a God that loves and nurtures children. He must be a cow that gives milk. No, God must be slippery and sneaky, hard to catch, and ready to pounce. He must be a snake. And you're looking at me like, well, who would do that? That's what people are. Oh, oh, you think, well, we don't do that. Oh, there's many societies that still do, but let's just take America. We're going towards atheism, they say. But it's interesting how the occult, and we talked about this, is really rising up. But hey, wait a minute. Don't people still worship bears and lions and eagles and falcons? Tigers? They wear helmets? 
chase a ball? It's interesting because, see, these stands, even now, well, not now, well, there are still football being played, but football on Sundays during the fall and the winter, many people, they'll go to the, their stadiums and they'll paint themselves, and it could be like 10 degrees out, but they've got their chest painted and it's got the emblem or maybe a letter to spell out the team. And then they cheer and they, they get all excited, you know. And they're worshiping, if you will. They're, they're coming to a place, a temple, where the play, game is played. And there's such excitement of what's going on down on the field. But see, the thing is, it's sad, as it takes place, really, so many of these people, instead of worshiping God, they go down to the field and, and worship the team, the players. And you say, well, what do you mean? Who would do that? But see, the sad thing is the excitement in those stadiums is what should be taking place in church. The excitement of being in church, the excitement that God is here, that God has called us into eternity, and that we worship Him because He is so worthy. And because of his wrath. What? His wrath. How many times do you hear on the news the injustice that's happening? How many times do you see it? How many times do you see children getting hurt? Innocent people being blown up. And you say, God, why aren't you doing anything? And you have righteous indignation. The truth of the matter is God will do something. In His time. See, God understands everything in any type of scenario to judge rightly. See, God cannot be a loving God and not hate evil. Because if he was just a loving God, then he would be a milk toast God. If he didn't hate evil. But if he just hated evil, then he would be a wrathful God without love or mercy. And we wouldn't be here, let's face it. You and I wouldn't even exist if that was the case. We'd all be dead. God would have said, yeah, this is a terrible race. Gone. But see, it's the perfect righteousness and the perfect love that go hand in hand with God. But see, that's not the amazing thing, really. Because of the wrath of God, it's going to come. Judgment is going to fall on all humanity. It's right for Him to do that. But where it really gets to the end in Revelation... We hear these words. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, remember, the void of God, receives his mark on his forehead, on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
In Psalm, it says it this way, Upon the wicked he shall rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. The cup of wrath of God is going to be poured out. It's going to happen. His timing, His understanding of that is beyond ours. But now, how, how do we put this together though? Wait a minute. We were just, you were just reading something last week, Pastor. Come on now. You were reading about Paul not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as written, the just shall live by faith. But wait a minute. If he's just, then how could he not judge us? I take you to a garden. Oh, it was a man-made garden, but still, it had God's plants in it. Isn't that amazing? Because we make these and cultivate the gardens, but what's the material we use is what God has given to us, and we make something that's beautiful. It's wonderful. My wife and I, we both agree we do not have a green thumb. So if you come to our backyard, you're not going to go, wow, this is really nice. You may come in there and go, well, I see you barely maintain it, but it's, I guess you can walk on it. Not our thing. But I have to tell you, I do admire those who have a passion for it. Why? Because I enjoy it. I enjoy walking in a garden. But why this is so poignant to me is just the simple fact of this. That in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. As he was in this garden, he said, Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. In Isaiah 51:22, Isaiah, thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. Why? It's for you and me, Jesus, drank it. The righteous indignation of God on sin that was placed on His Son, our Lord drank what you and I deserve. Now you know the agony. He felt the full fury of God's Righteous indignation against sin. 
Oh, let that make you pause and wonder for a moment, but then let it make you feel rejoiceful that God did this for you, for me. That's what He did. That's the good news. That we understood, we saw, we repented, we came to the tree of life and drank anew. Born again. Free from God's wrath. From God's judgment. But that gives us a responsibility, doesn't it? We know it's coming. And God is right to do it. But God also doesn't desire that anyone would perish. That all would come to repentance. And God uses you and me in this task. Yeah, I'm trying to stir this up in all of us. The realization of what God desires to do in and through you is beyond your mind, beyond your thoughts, beyond your capacity to think and know. Why? Because He is that great. He's that much of a genius. And He knows you more than you or anyone else would ever know yourself. And He loves you. Do I really need to say anything else? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the truth that we've heard this morning. And I pray that all of us would again just stand back and be at awe of Your creation. Be at awe, Lord, of Your justice. Be at awe of Your wrath. Be in awe of You taking the cup that we deserve and You partook of it Yourself for us so that we may enter into a relationship without wrath or judgment. Enter into a relationship that our heart yearns for. That we may know You, the true and living God who truly loves us and paid it all for us. I pray, Lord, that each of us, that You would stir in us Your Spirit. Help us to stop being participants in the back row, but let us be in the front row. Knowing that it's not about us deserving it, it's about us just wanting to express it. The praise and honor and glory that is Yours through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And because of Him, we are saved. And because of Him, He has sent His Spirit into our hearts to transform us into the image of Christ. So we come before You to worship You. We come before You to give You praise. We come before You to give You honor. We come before You to give You everything that we are because You gave us everything that was needed. Your Son. I pray that You would stir in all of our hearts a stirring that would produce fruit for your purpose, and for your glory. And in your name, we ask these things. In Jesus. Amen.